Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 to 13. When we have a Sunday like this in between Advent and New Year's, between Advent and Gospel Priorities or a new series, it's a, it's a great time to reflect on our past year and to give an encouragement for the year to come. So I'm turning us to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 as my favorite passage for the relationship between pastors and their people. Now, I know that First uh, and Second Corinthians is, is written to a difficult church, and so I am not implying by that that you are a difficult church. I rejoice in the Lord for who God has made you. You provide me such joy in my ministry, and I can speak on behalf of the other pastors and say the same. We are blessed with incredible unity despite this pandemic. Uh, you have continued to bring joy to our ministry as you, the congregation of Second Press, have, have pursued the mission in your practical ministry. Many of you have come to worship. Those of you who are not able to come to worship in person have con- remained engaged with communication and watching the services. You've been giving aggressively. I can tell you for your encouragement that your, your pastors, the staff, are united We've managed to have some, some real fun this year. I can tell you that our officers, over a hundred people, men and women of all ages, are united in truth and purpose and love. I and my family feel real love from you, and I trust you know that we love you. You think far too much of me, and I think far too much of you, and that is the beauty of the great love affair that I find described, or at least Paul is dreaming for, to be restored again with these Corinthians. So I read this passage not because it exposes something faulty in our congregation, but this is preventive maintenance. This is a call for us to guard diligently the good trust that God has given to us, the the peaceful days, united mission He has provided for us. I'm also reminded to do this at this time of year because of, of a tradition I inherited from one of my associates at the church I came from. He, he uh, initiated in that church a, a yearly covenant renewal service. We did it for many years. And, and what he would do is lead us. We would have a sermon to that theme of, of covenant renewal. And, and then he would remind us of the vows that we had taken as members and as pastors and elders. I'll sprinkle those through the message today, but let me begin with the vows that all of us have taken at at some point as members of the church before we read this passage. and, And to get these vows in front of us and ask the Holy Spirit, to, to refresh us in that joy we had when we first joined the church and call us again to, to refreshed and renewed commitment to those vows. We said, uh, the minister asked us, do you, do you acknowledge yourself to be sinners in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation except in His sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and depend upon Him alone for your salvation 
as he has offered in the gospel? Do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Do you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service of God and its ministry to others to the best of your ability? And do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and to the spiritual oversight of this church session? And do you promise to promote the unity, purity, and peace of the church? Now listen as Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 calls upon these members of the church and calls upon calls to himself as well as his fellow pastors to renew their vows to serve each other in a gospel-centered way. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I want you to go with me to a place you perhaps have never heard of before, a small village in Belgium called Hale. Now, if you're looking for it on a map, it's not spelled like you would think. It's spelled G-E-E-L, but it's pronounced Hale, Hale, Belgium. The city has been around since the Middle Ages. And as we, we walk down the streets, you, you might, you'll, you'll see some very odd sights. Some, on the one side of the street, there's a woman who is, who is walking along the street. She's holding her shoe to her ear, talking into it like a phone. On the other corner of the street is a man conducting an orchestra, only there is no orchestra, and no one is paying attention to him. On the other corner of the street, there's a, someone handing out plastic bags for no apparent reason, and everywhere people are talking to themselves, not engaging, maybe not even making eye contact with others. 
Some odd behavior. But among those who are not acting oddly, what is odd is that they don't act like the others are acting oddly. They receive them. They just deal with them. They interact freely with them. There is nothing abnormal in their village. You would think that is odd until you understood the history of that great city, which since the Middle Ages has been the most favorable place on the planet for adults with special needs. People from all over the world bring adults with special needs who seem hopeless or helpless or despondent in any other context, but there they come to life. Sometimes their mental illnesses are reversed, but more often than not, their, their emotions, their, their hearts are lifted. They're happier. They're freer. They do better physically. There is a mental health hospital in the middle of the village, but few patients are in it. Most of the, the residents, the special needs adults, live in cottages behind families. And those families pledge themselves to take care of those special needs adults until they die or until they themselves die, and in which case, if they die before the special needs adult does, then their children are pledged to take care of the special needs adult as well. What's the motivation? Why would anyone live like that? Why would a whole village of people live like that? If you were to interview them, you would find, you, you might suspect that it's money. It can't be money. Then none of them makes more than about $13 a day for reimbursing expenses. It's certainly not as much as it really requires. But if you speak to the citizens of, of Hale who have been doing this, as I said, for hundreds of years, they would have a common theme. It's because these dear people deserve respect, they would say. They would say, we love them. We love them, though they, they, they can't fully appreciate what is being done for them, and they love us back in a way that is appropriate to their ability. There is a mutual love that that, is, that can't be explained by anything material. It can't be explained by anything that the, the world says should form a contract of love. And it, it is this inexplicable, undeserved, but mutual love that gets the world's attention. Why is the story of Hale, Belgium to told around the world? Because it is the story, it is the shocking, astonishing story of love. You know what the, you know what the great apologetic of the church is? You, you know what the, what the ultimate proof to the world will be that the gospel is as great as we say it is. It is the love we share among ourselves and especially between pastors and people. Love shared between, between pastors and people. When there's no real material benefit to it, there's, there's, 
you don't get anything really tangibly from the service of a pastor, and 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 pastors have a salary, and we're taken good care of here by you, but it's. It's, it's, it's not what the world might offer, and, and uh, you give us nice uh, gifts and so forth at Christmas, but it's not a lucrative business. Why do we love each other the way we do, not, not receiving anything lucrative like the world says should, be, should constitute a profitable relationship? It's because here we have the beautiful opportunity to demonstrate to the world the good news of the love of God the Father through Jesus Christ for us and us in return, to to demonstrate on this earth the, the, the mysterious relationship that the Bible says angels are flummoxed by. They, they, they stand on their tiptoes and look down and they cannot figure it out. Just two points I want to make to you from this passage that, that I want to call us afresh to. Again, you are practicing them very well, but let's, let's not lose what we have. Let's, let's endeavor all the more to give ourselves to this loving apologetic, this great love affair between pastors and people by these two things, by loving sacrificially one another and loving passionately, loving from the heart one another. Look how it unfolds in this passage beginning in verses 3 through 10. Paul, uh, with some degree of embarrassment, is telling these Corinthians how he and his fellow pastors and elders have sacrificed for them. And he's not doing so to, to, uh, to solicit from them sympathy. Paul doesn't want sympathy. He doesn't want them to feel sorry for him. He's, he's trying to convey to them how much he loves them and ultimately how much Jesus loves them. And, and saying, in effect, if, if I didn't love you, and these Corinthians are saying, you don't love us. You, you lied to us. You've been untrue. We're not, sure we like your, we're not sure we like your theology. We certainly don't like your high squeaky voice and your preaching. You're not much to look at either. And so, and so but Paul says, I, but I want you to know how much I love you. And here's how much I love you. I've suffered for you. Now, Paul is not saying that, that it only befalls pastors and, and elders to suffer for their people. Suffering, he says, is part of the whole Christian life. Jesus made that promise. Jesus said, if you follow me, you have to take up your cross daily and follow me. He says, in this world, you will have troubles. Paul says elsewhere, anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering is part of the Christian life. Not because God enjoys our suffering, but there's no way for the world really to believe that the good news is as great as we say it is if they don't see it tested. But Paul says if suffering is a, is a part of the Christian life, he makes that argument in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 11, he, but, but it is especially a part, it is a necessary part of the life of a minister, of a pastor. Because the people have to see that the gospel is real in the one they're following spiritually. So, when you see your pastor or your pastor suffering, it is appropriate to, to, to have compassion for them. But it's not for you to, to feel guilty. It's not for you to, feel, for, for you to, to, uh, to, to pity them. It is to see that this is part 
of the proving of the gospel. Paul makes that point. That point is so important to Paul, joining the reality of gospel ministry to suffering that he says it, he connects them 23 times in his letters. Martin Luther said that uh, when he talked to his his uh, students who were studying for the ministry, he said, a large portion of the curriculum of this seminary is suffering. Not that he was going to make them suffer, but, but that that's part of becoming a minister. And so Paul says, here's the way we have suffered. Here's the way we suffer in the, in the gospel ministry. We suffer passively and actively. Passively, verses 3 through 5. We are servants of God, and we by great endurance... By afflictions, hardships, and calamities, we serve you. All of those are descriptive of, of, of internal struggles. Elsewhere, Paul says in chapter 11, verses 23 to 33, he describes his anxiety. Paul says these are internal feelings. This, this word translated hardship is like being, it's the image of being pressed in, being squeezed, feeling like the life is being squeezed out of you. If you've had a panic attack, you know what that feels like. Somebody's pressing on your chest. And then we suffer not only internally, we suffer externally, he says, for the people of God in beatings, imprisonments, riots. These are things that I, I've, I've never suffered something like this, and most of my colleagues have not either, but these are the external abuses that can come, these external persecutions that do come for standing on the Word of God and, and for the gospel. And then there are physical deprivations, he goes on to say, labors, the ministry is just plain hard work mind and body, involves sleepless nights of prayer and study and, and uh, hunger, at times financial or physical deprivation. And then Paul says there's active exertions or active uh, acts of suffering as well, verses 5 to 7. We've uh, covered these uh, in verse 5 already, but by purity, knowledge, patience, and kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine truth and love. These are extra jobs and mental toil that we've described earlier. And, and then Paul says, but this is, all, this is all empowered by the power of God himself. We're not left to our own resources, our own strength. Don't ever look at the minister and say, what a strong, self-disciplined, altogether person that is. No, instead you should say, what a miracle, a walking miracle. He's held up by God, obviously. It says uh, it's only by God that one remains pure, that one keeps integrity, that one has his or her morality. He has a gift of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes right in the middle of it, and, and the Spirit gives those this fruit of the Spirit, love, power in preaching, power of the Word, through a weak vessel. That's what he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. How do we preach, he says? How do we, how do we show ourselves so strong among you? It's by Christ's power. Christ sees to it that our weaknesses are openly manifested so that you cannot get the misimpression. 
that if you're just as strong and disciplined and godly and wonderful and perfect at all things like your pastor, then you can be a a holy person too. No, instead, God sees to it that our weaknesses, the weaknesses of a pastor, are turned inside out so that you can say effectively, if Christ can save that person and use my pastor, he can use me. I, I teach this to my students in seminary that, you, that you, you don't want to call extraordinary attention to yourself and your weaknesses as a pastor. You don't want to bleed over everybody. You don't want to provoke self-pity. You can become proud. You can express pride in your humility. That's possible. But you do, you do need to be vulnerable and, 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 and tell your people where you struggle, where you sin. What are your, what are your weaknesses? I, I told... Some students at one time and a, and a, a pastor who was a bivocational pastor and he, 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 his main job was, was as a SWAT officer. I mean, he, he broke into dangerous places and stormed dangerous, uh, dangerous places where they sold drugs and so forth. He was putting his life in danger all the time. He was had big muscles. He was a powerful man. And he raised his hand. He was really mad at me. And he said, do you know what would happen if I told my people I was weak? They would take advantage of me. Well, I had plenty of distance to run from him if he didn't like what I was about to tell him, but I told him. I said, your people will never believe the gospel if they never hear from you that it is sufficient for you in your weakness. This is what Paul is saying. He'll go on to say, you've, you've identified some of my weaknesses, but in chapter 11 he said, you haven't named them all. Let me tell you some more. And Paul says uh, he's also gifted in this ministry with the Word of God. Verse 7, by truthful speech, the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. What are those weapons of righteousness? We know these two from from First and Second Corinthians. These are the weapons of prayer and especially the Word of God. We don't have, we don't have anything as ministers by which to advance the mission other than the Word of God. We don't have anything upon which to stand and to defend our character or the, the truth we, we preach than the Word of God. And where our lives don't match up with the Word of God, the, the, the Word becomes a weapon against us. That is our only weapon. It is God's Word. And yet it is divinely powerful, the Bible says. Finally, in verses 8 through 10, finally just for this first main point, verses 8 through 10, <clears throat> he says, we are also made your pastors by personal discipline, by the, by, that is by the Lord disciplining us. Yes, through, he says, we serve you through honor. You do honor us and overwhelm us with, with encouragement. And sometimes there is dishonor. Sometimes there is slander along with praise. Sometimes we are regarded as true, at other times regarded as imposters, as unknown, anonymous, and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed. God makes sure that we go through, pastors go through, anyone who leads God's church, officers too. Make sure that we go through humbling. 
I once said to an elder who was a, this is a long time ago, he was a very difficult man in my life. He turned out to be one of my best friends, but he was a very difficult man in my life, and he said he wanted to be my, he wanted to be my personal prayer partner, so he insisted on going to lunch with me every month, and, and uh, it was ensured that I would have indigestion uh, at least once a month because those were never pleasant meetings. And then after he had, he had, uh, he had uh, criticized me through the whole lunch, we would have prayer together, prayer together, share our requests with one another. And his first prayer for me was always, I pray that George would be humbled. I pray that George would be humbled. And then he would pray for the other things that I actually asked him to pray for. Well, I started to, to, to love him in return in the same way. He would pray for me to be humbled, so I would pray for him to be humbled. And then uh, eventually we got to the point where he prayed that I would be humbled, and I, and I, I broke out in prayer. I said, uh, my friend, God has answered your prayer for me. Oh, he has. I said, yes, he, God has humbled me. Oh, he has. That's wonderful news. I said, yes, he's used you, the thorn in my side. He's used you as a thorn in my side to humble me. I want to testify. It wasn't. I didn't have pure motives in doing that. But he did. He did serve a purpose in my life. And God humbled him too, to the point that he came to me one day and he said, I don't know why in the world you ever let me be an elder. God has humbled me. Well, I needed humbling. And I constantly need humbling, just as every Christian does. But no minister will be of any use to his people if God is not regularly humbling him and identifying him with the Lord Jesus. And yet this is the miracle. As sorrowful, verse 10, yet always rejoicing. While there may be deep sadness or or suffering, there is a deeper, deeper joy. And that's what the people must see. They must see this is, this is the gospel at work. This is true. It works. We see it in our pastor, and so we cling to it ourselves. Paul makes much of that, repeating it 13 times, this, this promise of joy that is deeper, deeper than any sorrow, any suffering. Now, what is that all about? Why all that suffering and trial and conflict? It is because the pastor is called to to remind his people that we're not play-acting at the Christian life. He's to remind his people constantly that, that we're not just Christians on Sunday or on the weekend. He is to sit on a wall, as it were, as a watchman and say, look, brothers and sisters, this is real. What you're going about in your daily life, there is a spiritual battle going on. You may not be aware of it all the time, but we're we're together advancing the kingdom of God. And it is my job, being where I am as a pastor, to be constantly in the Word, reading history and and engage the the, the interactions among yourselves and and what's happening in your personal lives and what's happening in this world is to read the, the Times, the newspaper, along with the Bible and say, this is what the Bible says is happening. And this is what the Bible says we must do. And this is how we are to interact with it. The, 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 the pastor is to constantly call us back to real reality. Real reality is not that reality that we think occurs from Monday to Saturday and has no transcendent explanation. It's purely material. Real reality 
is where history is going, is what God is doing in history, what God is shaping us into, where we're going to be into all of eternity. And the pastor is constantly calling us back to that real reality. I asked my friend Sinclair Ferguson once, he's, he's been here to this church as well, I asked my friend Sinclair Ferguson, one of the greatest theologians, one of the greatest living theologians in our world, he was teaching at, at a seminary in, in the Northeast, he was a, he was a prolific author, he was, he was a requested speaker all over the world, and, and then he, he resigned his seminary job and he went back to pastor at a church, a church that was deeply troubled and caused him much suffering and difficulty. I couldn't stand it. One day I called him up. I called him in Scotland and I said, Sinclair, I've just got to ask you to be honest with me. Why in the world did you leave a dream job like seminary, being a seminary professor and go to work as a pastor? And he said, George, there's nothing like it. Yes, it's difficult. But there is no job like the pastorate where you're living the New Testament from the inside out. You're not dealing with theory. You're not... uh, You're not working on widgets and then imagining and asking, oh, Lord, please make this eternally significant. You're not dealing with temporal things that will pass away, but you, there's an immediacy to your work. This is the New Testament from the inside out. This is the cosmology that the Bible describes. Not bragging on the pastor's work to make you feel bad about your own work, but I am telling you that this is, This is what we're about as fellow Christians, and that's my role in this team called the church. I'm just a team member with you, and my role is to keep you encouraged and to keep you focused on the kingdom and to to live out. Our role as pastors is to live out the, 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 the truth of the gospel that God uses the weak, and God brings joy out of suffering. We love sacrificially, and then... A lot more briefly, I want to show you in these final verses, 11 through 13, what it means to love passionately, to love one another from the heart, not just pastor and people, but, but people to their pastors. In verses 11 through 13, Paul, you can hear Paul pleading. He, he, he does call himself a father to, his, to this congregation. Even while, as, as, as badly as they treat him, he calls them his children. He repeats it here. I speak as, as to children. And you can hear him, his voice breaking up as he speaks through his tears. And elsewhere he says he's writing through his tears. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. That's what it means to love passionately. It's to love with open speech. It's to tell people how much you love them, how much you appreciate them. Oh, my goodness, I was, I was uh, reprimanded in the gentlest of ways when I was a very young pastor and uh, by an elder <clears throat> who, who asked me, I'd been there a couple of years, and, and he said, uh, George, are you happy here? I said, oh, John, I'm very, I'm very happy here. I'm very blessed to be here. He said, it might be, 
it might be good to hear you say that every now and then. Oh my goodness, that was, that was a good chastisement. I want you to hear that from me. I'm so glad to be your pastor. I'm glad that I have been called here. And I want, to, I want to commend you for your open speech to me. You write many cards and letters and emails of encouragement to me and to all of us as pastors. We regularly, in our, in our preparation for leading worship, we say, help our people to know the joy that they bring to us in the ministry. Help them to know by our ministry today how much we love them. Paul says, I have opened my mouth to you. He opened his mouth to them in tough times. He taught them tough things. He opened saying vulnerable things. As I said in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, uh, you've accused me of weakness. I'm going to tell you how weak I actually am. I'm a coward at heart. One time I ran away. I allowed myself to be lowered in a basket like a baby, uh, preaching the resurrection on one hand and then running away from the other. I'm a coward at heart. I'm not naturally courageous. So I've opened my heart to you. I've told you about my needs, my physical needs. And on many occasions, the people to whom he wrote had helped him physically. And then we open our hearts to one. We, we show each other open affection. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 2, I make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. Now, how can Paul say that to these people who have mistreated him so badly? How can they say to him when at times he's, he's, he hasn't always been easy to get along with either? How is it that they're able to love each other in this way? The answer comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. But he says at the very beginning of this correspondence to this difficult people, to the church of God that is incarnate, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul is able to say these, these open-hearted, vulnerable, generous things about people even when they're wronging him because he refuses to see them in any way except as they are in Christ. He doesn't look at them as they are currently, but as they are positionally in Christ, as who they will be when they, when they come to him. How else do you think God hears our prayers? It's because he doesn't view us as we deserve. He says, okay, I'll hear your prayers. I'll bless you, not because of who you are right now, but because of who you are in my son. The way we love each other with open heart, with generous affection, is by insisting, insisting on looking at each other as who we are in Christ. And what will that accomplish? What will this kind of sacrificial love, this kind of passionate service to one another, what will, what will be the result? Well, the gospel will be advanced. You know, people are not very well convinced of the gospel when they see 
the church fussing at each other or they, they, they learn of a rift between the pastor and the people. They say, ah, yeah, that's what I suspected all the time. But when people love each other, when there's a great love affair between pastor and people, as God has given us here, the gospel goes forth. It's convincing. Now, the opposite of that is illustrated by Paul, too, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, you know, I was so brokenhearted by, by, by the disruption of our relationship that when I went to Troas, there was an open door presented there for me for the gospel. All I had to do was walk through it. All I had to do was preach the gospel. People would have been saved. But I was so depressed, so anxious, so heavy-hearted that I couldn't do it. I could not take advantage of that open door. So if that's true negatively, then positively it means... That when there is this kind of love, the gospel advances. And what's more, when we love each other, we continue to love each other as we are doing. Our, our Father is blessed. Our Father is blessed by the way we love each other. I have no greater joy, John says, than see my children walking in the truth. A father's great joy is to see his children loving each other well. Let me remind you of the vows that we have taken to each other as, uh, <clears throat> as pastor and people. And I won't repeat the vows made by officers because their vows are mostly the same. So for the sake of time, I'll remind you of the vows that you and I, and I'm representing all the pastors on staff by repeating these as well. Let's call ourselves to them afresh. Do you reaffirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? That's asked of me. Do you believe the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God, totally trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the supreme, final, and only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? Do you promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with the system of doctrine as taught in the Scriptures and as contained in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms of this Church, you will, on your own initiative, make known to your presbytery the change which has taken place in your view since the assumption of your ordination vow? Do you affirm and adopt the essentials of faith without exception? Do you subscribe to the government and discipline of the evangelical Presbyterian church? Do you promise subjection to your fellow presbyters in the Lord? Have you been induced, as far as you know your own heart, to seek the office of the holy ministry from love to God and a sincere desire to promote His glory and the gospel of His Son? Do you promise uh, to be zealous and faithful in promoting the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church, whatever persecution or oppression may arise unto you on that accord. And will you seek to be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as a Christian and a minister of the gospel, whether personal or relative, private or public, and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before the flock of which God shall make you an overseer. And are you now willing to take the charge of this church agreeable to your declaration when accepting their call? And do you, relying upon God for strength, promise to discharge to it the duties of a pastor? And then let me ask you, brothers and sisters, in the privacy of your homes and in your heart, 
to recommit yourself to the vows you made to your pastors, not just me, but the pastors and elders. Are you the members of this congregation ready to receive these brothers and sisters as your pastors, as your elders, as your deacons? Do you promise to submit to them in matters of spiritual discipline, to receive with humility and love the word of truth? Do you promise to support your pastor with prayers, to give encouragement in his work, to assist him in every way as he seeks to instruct you in the things of the Lord and to lead you in the building of the kingdom of God in this place? And do you recommit yourselves to fulfill the terms of the call you've extended and to make a provision for his needs that the name of Christ might be glorified? I reaffirm those vows, and I thank you for living out your vows toward me, toward my fellow pastors, to the officers of this church in such a glorious way. You make it a joy to serve here. Let me close this way. With that scene from the last battle, C.S. Lewis's. And there's, a, there's an image of, and you've seen this, this is reflected in one of the movies. There's a scene where, where Aslan, the figure of Christ, the great lion, is, is, has just conducted judgment, put the enemies to flight, and now he is, he is rewarding and recognizing those who have fought alongside him in the last battle. There's a little bit of a commotion as... As an army of mice come up, and Reepicheep is there. He, he was introduced in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, and in, in one of the battles against the Telmarines, his, his, his tail was cut off. And while the wound was healed, the tail never grew back. And so, so Reepicheep, who never seemed to see, see that his, his, uh, his courage was not matched with the size of his little body, but he came, he came up to Aslan, and he said, I have, I have a request to make of Aslan. What is it, he said. I'd like you to grow back my tail. Aslan chuckles a bit. said, why do you need a tail? He said, "My, my Lord, a mouse can suffer and endure pain and sleeplessness and, and live and die without a tail. But a tail is the honor of a mouse. Aslan was not impressed until he heard a little stirring going over and he looked over at the, at the rest of the army of mice and they had all drawn their swords. He said, what is the meaning of this? And they said, we are not, we are not about to maintain an honor for ourselves that is denied our chief. If you do not grant his request for the restoration of his tail, we will cut off our own tails. And Aslan said, Ah, you have conquered me. You have conquered me with your love, not for your honor, But for the love shared between you and your people, I will grant your request. What kind of love 
will conquer the world, will get the world's attention. What kind of love conquers the very heart of God? It's the love we share as pastors and officers and people. Thank you, Second Prez, and bless you. Let's pray together. Lord, as this very difficult year draws to an end and a new year comes on the horizon and many hopes with it, hope of a vaccine, hope of new relationships, hope of, of the repair of broken things in our society, we, we, Lord, recommit ourselves to you and ask that you would refresh us in the gospel as over the month of January we remember the priorities of the gospel. The Lord has come to preach good news in the year of Jubilee. That we would recommit ourselves to that good news and that the church and its individual members are to show the way to the world of the true good news, beginning with the love we have for one another. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.